All right, it is definitely very good to be back with you guys. Um, I missed y'all last week, I really did. And it, it, yes, I have a shoulder injury, but like Maria said, I do not have a brain injury, at least not from that accent, accident. Um, that's, a, that's, a, that's a different thing that, that we can talk about later. Um, but uh, so yes, we will definitely be doing the Q&A after the sermon before we re- jump into communion. But I missed you all this last week, and it was also f- interesting and especially helpful to hear Ryan Sutherland's sermon on the, the pearl of great price and, and the, the, this great treasure that we have in Christ because uh, it kind of broke a little bit of what feels like a lot of building tension in James, right? I mean, just as you're, as you're listening to Maria read that passage from James 3 in the beginning of James 4, right, you realize how much of a crucible James has taken us through and between these, these impossible contradictions that he seems to be telling us this, and creating this cognitive dis- dissonance in order to kind of create within us this realization that things maybe aren't as simple as we think. And James is trying to point this out to us, right? He, he, he's been saying, like, like the, the week before last, you know, tame your tongue, but nobody can tame the tongue, Right? Care for, care for orphans and widows, yet no one really does in the way that we're called to, right? Follow the law of liberty, and yet even with the law of liberty versus the law of judgment, we still all fall short. So he's been building this tension, and, and in that, that sermon from a couple of weeks ago, if you were here, you know that I, I said that that was like really the climax and the, the main thrust and point of James, and now he's going to start kind of backing out of the argument to fill out the implications, and he's anticipating a question. He's anticipating the question of like, okay, if it's impossible, how then do we live? How do we, like... What do we even do with this, right? And this question is a question of wisdom. Now, wisdom is, is more than just kind of like, like I think in a modern era, we think of, when we think about wisdom, we think about like, oh, this is like best practices, like how to like live a good life in the like effective sense, not necessarily in the virtuous sense. But the best definition of wisdom I've ever heard is skill in the art of godly living. Skill in the art of godly living. And that is especially important to, to hear the word godly, not as like, well, a particularly Christian and therefore effective way of living, but one that is centered on God, that is actually living in and for God. And so he anticipates this question of how then should we live? And then he opens this section by asking who, like anticipating this is the question that they're probably asking, who is wise and understanding among you? He says, by his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. Um, To illustrate kind of what this is getting at, like one of our family's favorite things to do in the evenings, and we often like have dinner while watching this, is uh, Lego Masters, which is on Fox or Hulu if you are watching reruns because you've already seen it twice. Um, A certain six-year-old is a particularly big fan, so that's especially the motivation. But in, in a recent episode, uh, which, by the way, if you don't know what Lego Masters is, it's, a, it's like a competition kind of game show of, like, you have, like, 12 hours to build this thing, and whoever builds the best version of that wins that, that episode, that round. And, um, and one of them recently was uh, Bridges, which is super interesting. 
And unlike a lot of the different competitions and the different assignments, um, this one went different than even the hosts expected. Right, so they, they were given these two kind of pillars, and you're supposed to construct a bridge across it. And they they brought in 350 pounds worth of weights to put on those bridges to see whose would withstand the most weight under pressure. Well, it turns out that uh, a couple of them built bridges that were so good they actually had to go find more weights across the set including getting cameraman to bring their sandbags that they knew were 25 pounds each, they got to 1,000 pounds for two of them. And they stopped there because they said, our lawyers have, ins uh, have informed us that we are not covered to, uh, for liability to add more weight than we already have. And so they broke the show, right? But what was super interesting about that episode is things that Things that you would not expect to have held the weight did, and things that you would have expected to hold the weight sure did not. In particular, one of the ones that were 1,000 pounds, they were following this, this like actually like kind of nauseatingly cute couple um, that, that were like, we're not our engineers. We don't know how to do this. We're just going to use, we're not going to use Technic. We're going to use Lego. And they're like, we just hope it, like we're going to really focus on the aesthetics of it because we don't know how to, and 1,000 pounds. Right? Some bridges were beautiful, and they looked like they would hold a lot of weight, but their integrity did not hold under the pressure. Right? And so James is saying, it is your conduct. By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom, particularly under pressure. And so this week and next week, we're going to talk about this idea of what is strange, it's a strange wisdom because it's surprising in a lot of ways. It holds up under weight that maybe you would not expect it to have held up under weight. And then there are some that is actually quite foolish, but it has the appearance of looking wise. And so in this morning, James starts by contrasting a wisdom that is from above versus below. Okay, and so we're going to divide this up, and we're going to talk about kind of two points each from below and then above. Um, the works of wisdom from below, he says, are self-centering. The works of wisdom from below are self-centering. In verse 14, when it says that you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, these these two words have kind of very more narrow meaning than in our kind of English language than they do in the original Greek. They have a wide range of meaning in the Greek. Okay, so they, they cover a lot of ground, but the common denominator of the ground they cover is that it is essentially selfish, centered on the self in terms of motive, behavior, everything from means and ends are self-centered. This is actually not new. Right? This is actually, this trans, uh, transcends every culture in history, every time and place, every people. This is the essence of what it, the fall is all about, is a self-centering. And I would say all of us kind of gravitate toward one or two flavors, uh, one of two flavors, and maybe more in one season of life than another, right? And these two flavors of self-centering are overt and covert. Overt self-centering it's probably more obvious from the bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, is this kind of, this pursuit of dignity, value, and worth from having what you desire. A dignity, value, and worth from having what you desire. Like, okay, like rank ego, okay? It is a 
uh, what one commentator said, uh, grasping self-advancement. I'm like, oh, that's good. It's, it's like grasping, like there's a, like almost a, there's a drivenness, not a drive. It's almost desperation, a grasping self-advancement that results with and, and has a, at least a reckless disregard, if not, and or an active use of others as a means to your own end. Right? That's overt. Covert is more subtle. We don't necessarily think of this as bitter jealousy or selfish ambition, but it is in this sense. It is a dignity, value, and worth from not having what you desire, right? It has an ethos of, it's kind of a, a faux humility, a, a perpetual woe is me discontentment where, where being misunderstood or mistreated, not having you know, excuses some culpability or some initiative or agency. Like, you know, it's like I didn't have the same means growing up that these other people did, so I'm not culpable or it's not my fault. We hide behind it's not my fault, right? Both of these, James says, leads to a <laughs> disorder in every vile practice, which, like, let's just, let me just validate. That sounds pretty strong, <laughs> for what I just described. Like disorder and every vile practice, how in the world is that possible? Like, you're, are you overstating this, James? And he's not. Because what those have in common is that they see relationships through a zero-sum lens. Right? Selfish ambition actually translated everywhere else, that word translated everywhere else in the New Testament, we, we actually read as rivalry. Right? It is a competition and conflict as the norm. It's a dog-eat-dog world, right? It's insecure. And when I said just a minute ago that it goes all the way back to the fall, I mean that literally. In Genesis 3, when the snake is in Eden tempting Adam and Eve to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the way that he does it is he says, if you do this, if you eat this, you will be like God. In other words... God is keeping this from you because he doesn't want you to live into your full potential. He wants to hold you down. He wants to keep this from you. He doesn't want you to be like him. But Adam and Eve were made in his image. Literally, the snake is saying, you will become, if you eat this, what you already are. And they believed that lie because they started thinking and centering themselves in that decision, right? So this is, this is the works of wisdom from below. But the source of this conflict, the source of, like where this comes from, James says, is the source of wisdom from below is a disintegrating desire. And I use the word disintegrating very, very intentionally. You know, we think of dis disintegrating is like a synonym of dissolve, and that's kind of right, but I mean that in the opposite way I was, I was describing is of the bridge just a minute ago, Right? It's the integrity that holds under pressure. It is disintegrating desire that breaks down the integrity that caves under pressure. It is desire. He says in verse 1 of chapter 4, right? What causes quarrels and what fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? It is a disintegration through desire, both inside us and outside us. And then in verses 2 and 3, he goes on and he says that there are horizontal and verti vertical symptoms of being ruled by that desire. He says it is, you desire and you do not have, so you murder. 
And by the way, he's probably, I'm not for certain on this, he's probably not meaning literally murder. What he's probably doing is, is evoking a, his audience to remember the Sermon on the Mount when, when Jesus is saying, uh, if you hate your brother, you are guilty of murdering him, right? He says, um, you covet, which is another word for desire, and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. In other words, you don't ask God. So he's moving from horizontal to vertical. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Which, if you, can, if you read that and were born before, I don't know, 1990, then you probably are remembering in your mind the immortal words and dated twang of Garth Brooks, who said, sometimes I thank God for unanswered prayers. Remember when you're talking to the man upstairs, that just because he doesn't answer doesn't mean he don't care. Some of God's greatest gifts are unanswered prayers. <laughs> First of all, let me apologize that will probably, that's probably the first and I hope last time I feel an actual need to quote Garth Brooks in a sermon. And what makes Garth Brooks's words uh, hard to hear is not just the circa 1990 country twang, but this seismic shift actually in how we have changed as a culture and as a society and how we've come to view desire since then. Like, that would not be a popular song now, even if you took the twang out of it. That, those lyrics... That attitude would never get any radio play now. And the reason for that is because we don't just think we have desires now. We believe we are our desires. And if that sounds like an overstatement or a stretch, you know and can see and probably think of examples where this idea that denying our desires could, that could actually be an increase in our joy isn't just strange... It's actually absurd, if not morally wrong or unjust. Wait, for somebody to encourage you to not pursue or to have what you desire might even be abuse now in the way that we understand desire. Frankly, as a pastor where this rubber hits the road and the most ordinary and common sense is that as a pastor, like I, I frankly, I dread, I dread saying no to something that someone comes and say, hey, can I do this? I really have a passion for it. And those of you who would otherwise say, I really have a passion for it, I know you're going to change your language now and say something different, but it's, 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 it's not the words you're using, right? It's, it's that when that is the center of our motivation, when we are our center, our, those disintegrating desires, right? When it's our passion and not another's need that's primary, then it becomes really hard to hear no because it feels like I'm, you're, you're hearing no not just to what you desire or are hungry or something you are passionate about. Even, by the way, if it's a good thing, it might even be something I have a passion for too. But if it's not needed, well, we're limited, finite people. Let's focus on that. That's the difference between wisdom from above versus below, because desire is a fine filter for picking a restaurant that you want to eat at, but it's foolish 
as a filter for picking a church or for ministering to others or for the art of godly living. Right? He says that spending on your passions is it's put in parallel with and as an opposite of stewarding for the good of others that we talked about just two weeks ago. And it's why it's actually said in parallel with verse 315 that we read earlier, which says, this is not the wisdom that comes from above. This is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. In other words, earthly and unspiritual is another way of saying like it's merely natural. If not... Perhaps, maybe, and I'm not saying that like you wanting to do something in your church as a passion is demonic, okay? I'm just saying like, no, that's actually more of like a, allowing our desires to control the way that we live godly, in a godly way. But there are some that, yeah, absolutely could be maliciously motivated and demonic. Either way, they're not of God. Whew. James, sugarcoating it, Okay? All right, so if, that is, if that's the works and the source of wisdom from below, let's talk about the wisdom from above. The works of wisdom from above is a self-forgetful meekness. A self-forgetful meekness. Verse 13 says, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. This is a description of the posture, of the ethos. It's a strange meekness that we don't really know what to do. We don't really understand what meekness is. We think a lot of times it's that faux, uh, faux humility or that faux um, hu- uh, vulnerability that we talked about earlier. But it's something distinctly different. It does not deny the existence of, deni- of desire. It doesn't invalidate it. But it humbly submits desire to God. And in the process, it frees us actually from being controlled or defined by those desires whether they are met or not. Another, another way of saying this is, right, it is, it is a, a differentiating and an overcoming of desire through dependence. Jesus articulated exactly this when in a different garden, in the Garden of Gethsemane, while awaiting the betrayal of Judas and the crucifixion shortly thereafter, he says in praying, he says, Father, If you are willing, in other words, if it is your desire, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, not my desire, but yours be done. Hannah has, my wife Hannah, has a really good way of of articulating this principle in terms of, of, of our marriage, right? She says that she wants me to value what she values, in saying that, she's not saying ignore your values or don't have the values that you have. He's, she's saying in a way that I think is very reminiscent of Ephesians 5 when Paul says, um, love, your li- love your husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church who gave himself up for her. It is a submitting of your desires to the desires of another, right? My values submitted to my wife's values. That is what I'm called to and that is what Jesus is demonstrating actually and what Paul means when he says, as Christ loved the church, that includes Luke twenty-two forty-two. Not your desire, Lord. Not my desire, Lord, but yours be done. If that's the posture, the ethos, the fruit, he, he actually painstakingly lists it in verse 17. Right? He says, the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable. Gentle, 
open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. Right? It, it is pure first, right? This is one, one piece. It is first pure, in other words, unstained, unadulterated by self-centeredness. And then he follows that purity and says, this is how you know it's pure with this list of explicitly relational adjectives. Like, did you notice? Peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. All of those are relational and happen in the context of community. It's a self-forgetfulness that's so focused on the good of others that your desires are transformed and redirected toward their needs. When Jesus was asked by his disciples at one point in John chapter 4, Jesus, let's, let's go. You're talking to the Samaritan and the woman at the well, but like, you're probably hungry. Let's go have lunch, Jesus says in a, in a, a statement that sounds like over-the-top like false humility. He's like, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Right? It sounds like he's saying, like, oh, I've, I win the humility contest here. That's not what's actually happening, though. Right? Like, Jesus is telling his disciples what we know to be true already. It's when you're doing something that you love, that you enjoy, whether it's playing Legos with your kids or it's climbing a mountain or whatever, you lose track of time. You forget to eat lunch. He's saying, doing the will of the Father, that's, my, that's, that's it. In 2018, a young man in his 20s, African-American, named Botham Jean, Jean, Botham Jean, in 2018, was sitting on his couch in his apartment watching TV when a law enforcement officer by the name of Amber Geiger accidentally thinking his apartment was actually her apartment, walks in, thinking it was her own, thinking that there's an intruder in her apartment, shoots and kills him. A year later, after she is tried and convicted of murder, during her sentencing, Botham's brother, Brant Jean, says the following in his victim impact statement. He, instead of talking about Amber, he's speaking to her. He says, I'm not going to say, I hope you rot and die, just like my brother did. But I personally want the best for you. I don't even want you to go to jail. I want the best for you because I know that's exactly what Botham would want you to do. And the best would be, give your life to Christ. His brother's murderer. I want to be your brother. I'm not going to say anything else. I think giving your life to Christ would be the best thing that both of them would want you to do. Again, I love you as a person, and I don't wish anything bad on you. <clears throat> After he said those words, he asked the judge for permission and then went and gave what others have called the hug heard round the world. And for minutes, stood and hugged and embraced a sobbing murderer of his brother. Now, this hug was heard around the world because everybody had an opinion about it. Shocker, I know. This is so outside of the norm, right? 
But as you know, this is happening in a season where our country is having a reckoning over systemic injustice, discrimination, racial bias, etc. And in the midst of this, many people had opinions saying, and this is a direct quote, forgiveness perpetuates injustice. People said Brandt was fawning. Fawning is a technical word used to describe a response that victims of trauma have. Fawning because black people are, quote, conditioned by years of trauma to reflexively offer forgiveness. That's real. I don't believe that forgiveness perpetuates injustice. But yes, fawning is a real thing. It's also a natural thing as in earthly and unspiritual. It is our response without a supernatural help. And what made me so uncomfortable and sick to my stomach about some of these responses, going back down that road and and reading news reports from two and three years ago now, um, was how much it cheapens a truly supernatural, from above victory of Brant's, Brant Jean's overcoming hurt, anger, passions, and desires he had warring within him, as James articulates. In fact, after the coverage died down a few months later that same year in November, in a speech accepting the Ethical Courage Award from the Institute of Law Enforcement Administration, Brant Jean confessed that, quote, pretty much this entire year, I pretty much hated her. I never intended for the statement that I made to the person who murdered my brother to receive such international recognition, but Miss Geiger needed to be forgiven, and I needed to be free from the burden of unforgiveness. Y'all, that is only from above. And you'll forgive me for reading quite a bit of his words, but I can't improve upon the supernatural grace gifted to an 18-year-old when the weight and the pressure of understandable, valid hatred and everything stacked against this kid incentivized him to do the opposite of what he did. If, there is no, if that is not evidence of a God of grace in our midst, I do not know what is. Because he said, and he said, he continues, he says, to be honest, I struggled with it for a long time as I struggled with accepting this award for, from this agency. He said, but I really don't want this to happen again. Again, you hear his motivation? It's for others again. As much as I want people to be forgiving, I don't want there to be another brother who has to forgive. My brother was well aware of the danger posed to young black men due to the misconceptions about color that seem particularly pronounced among law enforcement community. I want you all to know I am not a threat, that young black males are not inherently dangerous or criminal. Meekness has nothing to do with fawning. I joked earlier that James is not exactly sugarcoating this, 
because he's being very blunt, he's demonstrating the meekness of wisdom in his letter. It is not a lack of courage. It is not a lack of honesty that is meekness. That's faux humility. That's faux meekness. And we, and Brent had nothing, this was not fawning, and we know this because he says to a room full of officers who are specifically, their role is in the training of other officers, and he says this, he says, I insist, 18-year-old, I insist that you encourage diverse leadership that can model inclusion and restraint. Most importantly, I ask that you remember my brother. I want you to ask yourself, what are you doing to ensure that there will be no other families like mine, no other little brothers that have to model ethical leadership and forgiveness of a cop whose lack of training and discipline caused them to carelessly take the life of another? The room stood in ovation after speaking those words. Now, you tell me, what has a greater chance of having the impact it needs? I contend, as James does, the wisdom from above is first pure and peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. I think that when we read words like this, as well as verse 18, it says, a harvest of righteousness, righteousness being shalom and peace, an equivalent is sown in peace by those who make peace. James is saying, if you want righteousness, if you want peace, if you want justice, They're one and the same. Means and ends must be married together. You don't get to make war to make peace. Righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And by the way, if peace needs to be made, that means it's in a context where it's lacking chronically, acutely, or otherwise. It means that wisdom from above is is most needed and most demonstrated when it is most painful and most difficult. When the weight of everything makes you want to disintegrate. Now, if we thought taming tongues, or caring for orphans and widows, following God's law, if we thought that was hard and impossible, I'm feeling the weight if you're not. And we need to ask, what is the source What is the power of this wisdom from above? Because we need help. We need something other than the weight. We need the Father's delight. This may feel like it's coming out of left field, but let me read Matthew chapter 3. When Jesus, at the beginning of his ministry, he goes to John the Baptist at the Jordan River, and he says, I need you to be baptized. I need you to baptize me. And when Jesus, it says in verse 3, Chapter 3, verse 16 says, And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. I want you to like 
just close your eyes. Pause, take a deep breath, and just ask yourself, if you heard God the Father say that to you directly, you are my beloved son, you are my beloved daughter, with whom I am well pleased. How would that change your skill in the art of godly living? What things would you feel no need or compulsion or desire to do because that desire is actually a hunger pain for your father's love? Can you imagine what that would be like? Never mind anything. This is a response to something you've done because Jesus is hearing this before he started his ministry. He hasn't earned it. He hasn't fed 5,000. He hasn't healed the sick. He hasn't cast out demons. He hasn't taught the Sermon on the Mount. He hasn't been betrayed by Judas. He hasn't gone to the cross. He hasn't been tortured and killed and executed. And he hasn't resurrected from the dead. At that moment, before he did any of that, his Father in heaven says, Behold, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. If you're wondering why I'm harping on this, it's because that is actually what God the Father has said to you. Those words are for you. They're not only for Jesus. A lot of you, if you've grown up in the church, you're used to hearing the gospel defined as Jesus died for your sins, and that is absolutely true. It's just only half of the good news. That's only the, the, the one of the two. It's called double imputation. Is the, the $50 word that means that Jesus took our sin, all our bad stuff, all of our shame, all of our guilt, and he gave us his righteousness. He gave us the peace that we pass to one another every Sunday. It's a gift. It's yours. And that means that when God the Father looks at God the Son, he sees you. If you are a Christian, if you are in Christ, God the Father is saying that to you individually every single bit and degree as much as he is saying it to Jesus Christ himself. You have the Father's delight. And we're going to do the Q&A in just a minute, so send in your questions, but I want to harp on this a little bit more. Because I said just a second ago that our desires are hunger pains for the Father's delight. This is why, and I know this is a week too late, because Ash Wednesday was last week, and if maybe you're aware of it, we're in the middle of Lent now, and you, you, you give up something that you desire for Lent, in order to be pushed toward the Father's delight in you. That's what Lent is about. Okay? Our self-centering is exposed in the light of the Father's delight as, as this kind of just cheap mimicry of a life that could be centered on the Father's already delight in His children. And so maybe you're the overt uh, self-centering, right? Maybe that's you, you identify a little more with that. You're probably so busy grasping and striving to change the world that you forget you can rest in God's promise that the meek will inherit the earth. That's the beatitude. The meek shall inherit the earth. 
what in the world does that mean? Thankfully, Eugene Peterson wrote the message, which is a paraphrase of Scripture, and he interprets it this way that gets to the heart of it. You're blessed when you're content with just who you are, who you are in Christ, and who you are in the Father's delight, no more and no less. That's the moment you find yourselves proud owners of everything that can't be bought. It's yours. Maybe you identified more with a, more with a covert self-centeredness. Maybe you're so focused on how or how often you've been wronged. You're so cynical of others. You're so hopeless at the thought of even finding or discovering or experiencing a love that you didn't have to advocate for. That your defensiveness drowns out the Father's ridiculous delight already dancing over you. Zephaniah 3, 16, 17 is one of my favorite passages in all Scripture for this reason. It says, on that day, by the way, what Zephaniah is referring to, the prophet in the Old Testament, he's saying this day, the one that is, that is in light of the Christ's death and resurrection. On that day, it shall be said to Jerusalem, among God's people, fear not one another, right? The peace of Christ be with you. Let not your hands grow weak. You can exercise your agency. You can live. You can speak. You don't have to fawn or have this fake faux humility. You can speak truth with love. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save, not maybe, not conditionally. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. In other words, he will he will calm the desires and the passions raging within you. He will exult over you with loud singing. And I was almost, I just caught myself. I was almost about to say, it's the kind of loud singing where you don't care if anybody else is hearing. That's actually not quite it. Actually, God does care. He wants everybody to know. He's not self-conscious or he doesn't care about how his association with us might reflect on him, he is delighting in you too much to be bothered with that mess. Because he loves you. He's delighting and dancing over you. Our passions are at war and our desires rage within us, in other words, because we forget and live like orphans, lost at the fall. And we forget that we're joyfully and delightfully fathered. So to answer the question, what is this wisdom from above that James is talking about? Wisdom from above is the unavoidable fruit of love from above. So if you are a Christian, you are in Christ. When we use that language, it's the same thing. If you hear nothing else that I hear, if you hear nothing else this morning, I need you, to, I want you to hear so badly that God looks at you now Already, this morning, like, yes, like, right, actually, right now, okay? Not later today when you keep your patience and don't lose your temper when your kids are melting down because I preach too long and they're hungry, etc. Like, now, he looks at you and proclaims, this is my beloved son or daughter with whom I am already fully perfectly, completely, unapologetically well 
pleased. You can't add to it and you can't take away from it despite your best efforts. If you're not a Christian and you long for that, that is actually the Father's will that Jesus said he is submitting himself to when he goes to the cross and he says, not my will, but yours be done. He is saying, I long for you to experience that. Because he loves you too. All of the Trinity, God Father, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are united in their delight in you. Return the hug. So who is wise and understanding? It is the meek, self-forgetful children who are so satisfied in the Father's delight that they are freed to give themselves away for the good of all. Okay, let's see what questions we have this morning. The language in the verses of chapter 4 make us think of desire for money or possessions, but it seems like desires for power and influence are a large current stumbling block for the church. Is that consistent with the ideas in the original language? Oh, yes, 100%. I mean, I... Let me think about it this way. Do we have a few minutes for a story? Okay, I got some shrugs and some nods. Cool, we're going with the nods. Um, All right, so we're talking with a music school in Boulder about them moving in and using some of our classrooms upstairs. And I had a conversation with the director of this school. It It was awesome. And the spirit of collaboration that he had is just like super exciting to me. And there's a part of, and, and, and in the process of that, I was like talking about how like, like we really would love for this building to be a space where we're like, like are people here about your school and are like want their kids to be involved in it and just like this is a cool opportunity. And he was like, same. I'm like, what? And he said like I would love for like the families of the our students like to find themselves at the table because we're in the same building. And I'm like, wow. And, it, and, and what it rebuked in me, he didn't know this and it wasn't, I realized in my heart, I was excited about like the cool factor of a school, of a music school, being in a space where we're doing concerts and everything, and it's like, we're the, we're the cool church that, you know, has all this fun, cool stuff in the same building, and I'm like, someone who's told me in the same conversation that they're not a Christian, it's like, I want people at your church. That's what it's about. So yeah, lest we think that that's other churches or other people, other Christians who are susceptible to that. No, all the time. So, the only other question I got was no question, just praise God. And to that I say amen. You know, when, when Jesus was with his disciples after telling them that my bread is to do the will of the one who sent me. It is hard to fathom them not thinking of that moment when he is at the Last Supper, about to be betrayed by Judas, and about to be crucified. 
when he was with the disciples, his friends, his brothers, almost in fact. And he took the bread, and he broke it, and he said, this is my body that is broken for you. My bread is not just to do the will of him who sent me. To do the will of him who sent me is to be broken for you in order to nourish you in, with bread. <laughs> Likewise, he took the wine and he poured it out and he says, this wine is the blood of the new covenant. It is forgiven. It is given for the remission of sins, for the forgiveness of sins. It's not just, what, the word remission, he's not just describing the forgiveness as in he's taking the sins away. He's saying it's as if they were never there. That's what remission means. And when he says that, what he means is you have my righteousness such that as often as you eat this bread and you drink this wine, you proclaim my death until I return. You proclaim the relationship that you now have in me. You proclaim that the Father has proclaimed, behold, this is my beloved son or daughter with whom I'm well pleased. And that's about you. If that is your hope, if that is your desire, and it's not your hope yet, but just your desire, this table is for you. Because that's a hunger pain for the delight of the Father that he wants to dance over you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I'm, just, I'm convicted of all, so many areas in my life as I'm preaching a sermon about hunger pains being the, des my desires being the hunger pains for the delight you have in me. I'm just, it holds up a mirror to all the places where I act as an orphan. I live as an orphan. And so Lord, I pray that those same desires, those same hungers would be satisfied at this table, in your table, because it is you who finished it, who complete it, who have brought us into the relationship with our Father, who made us in our image, and whose image we deny being made in with every act of sin. But Lord, there's nothing we can do to take away or add to it, and that is what we are nourished by. So thank you, Lord, for what you have done, that it is finished, it is complete, and Lord, let that delight nourish us this morning. We pray all this in your name. Amen.